It's a tough time to be a free trader and an economic liberal. The forces of populism and the rise of inequality have together pushed the old everyone benefits from trade consensus firmly to one side. Indeed, localism rather than globalism seems to be the impulse of the moment. Enter Kimberly Clausing, whose book Open, The Progressive Case for Free Trade, Immigration and Global Capital, bucks these trends. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Mark Blythe. Brendan Greeley and I sat down with Kimberly to talk about why it is that while people have much to complain about in terms of how the economic pie is distributed, greater trade, capital flows and immigration are the solution, not the problem. Here's Brendan. A way to frame this conversation is that there was a shock to the system in 2016. It was an outcome, in America at least, that nobody expected. Neither party expected that outcome. Um, And so we learned some things about America. Those of us who are in the profession of trying to understand America and the world, we learned some things that we had not understood before. And so the last two years has been this process of diagnosis uh, and prescription for whatever the malady is that, that evidently was in America that we didn't know we had. So let's start with this shock of 2016, because what you have with your book is a pretty comprehensive diagnosis. So what is your diagnosis having looked at the symptoms for the last two years? Yeah, so one big factor in the 2016 election, and I don't think it's everything, um, and so I think we can overstate this, but one big factor was certainly economic discontent. And I think that that economic discontent was really well-founded. If you look at the last 35 years, uh, wage growth for those really in the bottom four-fifths of the population was far short of what people had expected based on earlier years. And so for many people, income growth was non-existent. Uh, For others, it was paltry. but it always fell short of what they had hoped for given prior generations. At the same time, we saw that the economy actually overall was doing really well. GDP was going up, and GDP was going up so much that if it had been shared evenly, that every household could have had 70% more income at the end of that period. But because economic inequality was so large, a lot of people were left behind, and so they were very upset about that. So in the book, I argue that um, the policies that we focused on over the last couple of years to respond to that are really wrongheaded and more likely to hurt those very same people that felt left behind. And so in particular, I'm thinking about trade restrictions, trade wars, tariff barriers, immigration restrictions. Those policies come with a lot of collateral damage that can ultimately hurt workers. Um, And a better response, you know, I also offer at the end of the book, but the overall argument is that uh, it's better to go directly to the problem problems that are um, facing American workers and not to just blame foreigners for everything. And so, I mean, one way of looking at it is that what we talk about is the China shock. Um, this is a, a, a phrase that was popularized uh, in the work of David Otter. He's an economist at MIT. Um, all of a sudden, all of this Chinese labor comes online. It's much cheaper. Uh, American uh, firms are offshoring. Uh, whole American industries disappear. It really was a shock. Um, that shock happened to many countries. Many countries found that they were suddenly competing with China. And it was in America where the devastation seemed to have the most consequences. And so in a way, it's rephrasing your diagnosis. Um, The shock happened. Why was America not as well prepared for the shock as, say, Germany or other developed manufacturing countries? So I think there's kind of two interesting elements to thinking about your question. Um, One is that 
both trade shocks and technological change, which is something that I emphasize a lot as, as a key part of this problem, but both of those forces were really affecting almost every um, economy in the world. But what we see on the ground in terms of economic discontent, income inequality, and the like, that varies quite a bit across countries. So one lesson from this is that policies and institutions and social norms are really important mediating forces standing between these shocks and workers. Um, But another thing to keep in mind that I think is really important is that there are a lot of other sources of disruption in modern capitalism. So the China shock, if you look at the Otter papers, may have accounted for one to two million job losses during the period that China was coming online. But in every quarter in the U.S. economy, we lose about six million or more jobs. We also create about six million or more jobs in the typical quarter. So there's just a massive amount of job churn, job creation, job destruction. And so I think pinning everything on on trade is um, not only misguided, but in a way leaves a lot of people behind who may have felt similar disruption because they lost their job to a robot or they lost their job to Walmart because they came to town and they used to work at the local pharmacy or what have you. And and so I think we need broader policies to really um, help workers when these shocks arrive. I think there's a bias. I know that I had this bias um, talking about trade before the 2016 election um, to talk about things on a national scale. Um, and, you know, something that we were all taught when we took economics in college in the 80s or the 90s, or the early 2000s, uh, was that, look, overall, it's good. And I think, you know, we keep referencing the work of David Otter, and you, you have a whole box about David Otter's work uh, in your book. Um, he was able to define a geography of job losses and that there's no such thing in America as an average voter. So there's no such thing as a net voter. So even though we're creating net jobs, if the furniture making industry in your state has been gutted, it just disappeared. When we look at you know employment in the furniture industry, in the uh, clothing industry, they just disappeared. Um, then you don't really care what the net change in America is. You care what the net change in your household is. And so one thing that seems to have, I know that it's changed for me, and it's something that I've been much less flippant about than I was two or three years ago, is that the net numbers don't matter. The aggregate numbers don't matter. You're making decisions based on what is happening in your town. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the interesting findings of that research is this link between this geographic concentration of of economic harm and polarization. And you see it actually not just with trade shocks. There's some other papers that look at technological shocks where they show similar things when you lose a lot of jobs um, in, in a concentrated space, whatever the cause, that does lead to economic discontent and the choosing of more polarized candidates. And it need not be necessarily on one party or the other, but but parties that are uh, parts of the parties that are more extreme look more attractive. So I think one smart thing to do in response to these geographically concentrated shocks is to focus on policies that also address communities and not just average workers. So one thing I suggest in the book is expanding, for instance, the earned income tax credit, which which does affect how much work pays throughout the entire economy. But I also suggest that we focus on some of these communities that have been left behind. And there's there are encouraging stories of communities that have recovered from these kinds of shocks. And Pittsburgh is a really nice example. They used to have a, a really steel-reliant economy. Then they lost people by the tens of thousands for years. Um, but they made a lot of really sensible investments in infrastructure and human capital and, and business came back to Pittsburgh and there's a lot of high tech and medical services jobs there that, that didn't used to be. And recently, The Economist rated Pittsburgh as one of the most livable cities in America. So so it is possible to turn things around, but it does take a deliberate policy choices, not just uh, kind of waiting for things to get better. 
Mark, jump in here. That you know, one of the nicest things about this podcast is that we often uh, have the chance to take a political scientist and put him in conversation with an economist. So, uh, Mark, as as the representative political scientist on this uh, on this program, um, how do you read uh, Kimberly Clausing's diagnosis? I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. I think that she hits all of the factors. The only thing I would question is the weighting of the factors. And here's what I mean by this. So you, Kimberly mentions quite correctly in the book uh, how um, organized labor has basically been decimated in the United States and how that plays an important role in making sure that there is some mechanism for workers to claim their share of both productivity gains and aggregate growth. But I think more can be made of that. So Let's think about Wisconsin. One of the numbers I've been fascinated to find out in my own research is that Wisconsin lost one third of its manufacturing jobs, not to China and not to technology, but to places like Texas through the migration down to right to work states. And there wasn't just one China shock. There were three China shocks. There's the uh, Subramanian and Kessel paper from a few years ago that details how there was a first an enormous shock coming out of East Asia with heavy industry migration in the 70s. Then there's the NAFTA shock of the 90s and then the China shock of the 2000s. And again, this geographic concentration in combination with the disempowerment of labor, I think goes a very long way to explaining this. The counterfactual being there are other countries that I spend a lot of time hanging out in, such as Germany and Sweden and Denmark. And they're some of those, well, particularly the Scandinavians, not so much the Germans, but they're some of the most technologically sophisticated and technologically intense societies in the world. And yet their reward structures and their employment has held up much, much better than ours. So just as we can't really blame trade, I don't think we can really blame technology in the same way. I think part of the missing story here is the story of politics and the story of labor. Yeah, and I actually am pretty friendly to that perspective. I think one of the really underestimated things that people should talk about more is the increased power of capital writ large. And that includes, of course, companies with more market concentration, but also it includes a sort of relative shift in power between major groups in society. And that's definitely been a big factor over the last few decades with labor unionization and labor powers in general just being weaker relative to capital and concentrated business. Another thing to keep in mind is the interaction between those types of things and what I would loosely describe as social norms, which are something that economists aren't great at talking about, but I think are still really important. Um, Even when you look at um, CEO pay, for instance, CEOs now earn about 300 times their median worker, whereas they used to, at 1980 or so, they used to earn 30 times the median worker. And I think that it's hard to argue that CEOs are 10 times more productive relative to their typical worker now than they were in 1980. Some people do argue that, but I think it's a little difficult argument to make. <laughs> um, but I but I do think that does reflect social norms. And those social norms also feed into the power of these different groups and into the economic policy, which, which fortifies those trends towards these power discrepancies, as you see big cuts in capital taxation without corresponding cuts in the taxation of those in the bottom uh, two thirds of the income distribution. So I think those are big issues to keep in mind. So uh, economics in general is not great at at talking about power. That's um, right. Yeah. So so how do you make sure your students at Reed College, you know, understand these lessons that we've been learning that have really only become clear since the recession, right? The recovery the recovery was not what it should be and all of a sudden we notice these patterns that had been happening underneath the entire time with stagnant wages and various things. How do you teach them about power when you're teaching 101 and 102? 
Yeah, 101 and 102 don't really get into power that much. And I do think political science is better at it. And it won't shock you to hear that I am a believer in comparative advantage. So um, <laughs> my students tend to also take political science classes. And I, I think it would kind of be best for both students to take some things in the other discipline, in part to get you know a more solid, um, grounded discussion of power than they would probably get from an economist kind of doing it off the cuff as they're, as they're trying to fit it in with other things. Well, I saw. I mean, I I, I saw this uh, yesterday. Somebody had posted a picture that they took of the chapter in Mankiw's, uh, you know, standard economics textbook. This is one of the most used economics, uh, basic economics college textbooks that's used in America. And there's a little box on monopsony. This idea that you have only one buyer uh, instead of uh, monopoly, where you have uh, only one seller. And um, uh, and it reads. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it basically says there can be monopsony in labor markets, but it doesn't really happen. So we're not going to talk about it. So in a way, that's that's an economist taking the tools that are available to economists and abdicating. Yes. So what I do actually, and when I teach that class, is I use the Mancu textbook in part because it's very. Um, crisp and and clear, uh, and because I think read students should get the opportunity to read something written by a Republican, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I point that out to them up front. But I also like if you look at that syllabus, uh, I have tons of other articles. So when we get to labor markets and the minimum wage, they read that chapter, but they read several other things too. And it, and it, it's really important, I think, to always supplement you know text with with other discussions and and the empirical literature on on the minimum wage, for instance, is, has really changed the debate a lot. And I, I think the arguments for the minimum wage are much stronger than they used to be even a decade ago, in part because of this recognition of, of market power. You know, you talked about uh, an erosion in norms. Um, and I think that's really important when we talk about not just wages, but also conditions. So um, I looked into this recently, the uh, the shareholder meeting for Walmart this last year. So Walmart has been pretty good about raising wages. Um, but in the shareholder meeting, there were two employee proposals, and both of them had to do with getting 40 predictable hours. It was incredibly important to, uh, you know, to, to everybody there. And when you look at the retail numbers for hours per week, that's dropped steadily. Now, those don't really swing wildly with uh, with expansions and recessions, um, but they, they tend to f- track a little bit. You know, people get more hours as the economy grows, um, and they aren't. So something's happening technologically to prevent them from getting enough hours. Now, the importance of ideas and norms there basically says that you have to provide as much value as you can to Walmart shareholders. You have no choice but to limit these people's hours, and they can deal with it. Um, that, unfortunately, collides with you know basic values that we have, which is that if you are employed full-time, you should be able to get 40 hours so that you can plan around childcare and various things that you need in your life, right? So there... There is a set of ideas around shareholder value that say you can disrupt your employees' lives in any way you care to. You can do anything that you want, and you have no choice because you have to provide value. And that overrides what should be a basic human impulse, something that you would not do to someone who's very close to you and say, look, I'm sorry that you know you can't get another job because you can't schedule another job, and I'm sorry that you're disrupting your family because you're making your parents take care of your children, but I got to take care of the shareholders. So one of the things that, that I kept on thinking reading the book is that ideas have shifted. 
right? The understanding of what we're allowed to do to employees has shifted. So that's not necessarily economic. That's about somebody has decided these ideas are okay, and those ideas have to change in order for worker conditions to improve. So how do you address that? Yeah, I think one um, really important thing to keep in mind here, and you're exactly right about the importance of predictable hours and working conditions and the like. Um, but we've always thought, even if, even if you go back to Adam Smith, we've always thought that markets work best when people have information. And by work best, I don't just mean for the holders of capital. I mean for workers, for investors, for consumers, for everybody, for society. Um, whereas I don't think we have a situation uh, in any market that's really characterized by our assumptions of well-defined information. So one uh, suggestion that I make in chapter 11 of the book when I'm talking about ways to better um, frame the business uh, society partnership uh, is having more information provided in a government mandated way about firms' labor practices. So here it's not so much a law that says, okay, you have to pay workers X, you have to give them these sets of things, you can't raise CEO pay. I'm not talking about those kinds of uh, more intrusive um, interventions, but rather just a uniform report where firms had to say, okay, what's the distribution of wages for my enterprise? What is the distribution of wages for those firms that I outsource for? What kind of labor representation do I have in decision making? Do I have predictable hours? You know, you could have a sort of a metric of all sorts of labor uh, friendly policies, and then and then firms would have to report on an annual basis. Uh, and we could put it on the Department of Labor website, uh, their record in those areas. Mm -hmm. If we had that kind of what I call is sort of a sunshine labor report, if we had that sunshine labor report, it would have a couple of really crucial advantages. One, um, if you're a worker uh, that's just graduating college and you're trying to decide where to work, you can see the labor records at your prospective employers and, and think about those. If you're a consumer, and this is one place where we do have a lot of power in the in the market economy, you can target your purchases away from companies that don't provide good labor rights and towards those that do. And if you're an investor, and there are a lot of investors with some social consciousness, right? You know, um, you think of endowments, but also think of, of uh, George Soros and the like. You know, you you can channel resources to places that you think will ultimately um, be more successful in part because they've got uh, more motivated workers. If you look, for instance, at the performance of Costco on the stock market, it, mm -hmm. it does better than Walmart um, despite paying its workers a lot more, despite having much more predictable hours, despite having much better health insurance. So I think incentivizing companies to think beyond the shareholders is really important. And one way we can do that is by requiring more information of them on a systematic basis. And, and one good example of exactly what you're saying is that uh... Uh, Starbucks uh, until three or four years ago, you know, it was seen as a beacon of, you know, providing health insurance for workers, providing reasonable pay, you know, it was seen as pretty uh, worker friendly. Uh, and then there was a great New York Times article about just how devastating it was that they were, you know, canceling shifts at the last minute, not making shifts predictable, not giving anybody, you know, schedules two weeks out and just how hard that was on on employees and their families. And the second that article came out, Starbucks went, oh, yeah, I guess that's really bad. Yeah, no, we'll stop doing that. Sorry. <laughs> so sunlight plays a role, but do the people who own companies also need new ideas? Do they need a, a different framework for looking at this? It feels like they're taught that this stuff is OK until they're suddenly shamed by it. And then they and then they sort of stop doing that. But there's clearly other stuff that's going on uh, is a shift in ideas needed that's bigger than just sunlight and shame. 
Yeah, well, I think some of the initiatives are certainly important. And one of the reasons I like the systematic part of these reports is that you're not relying on the press to pick sort of sexy companies to talk about. Yeah. That we'd have this information about everyone. But I, I agree that new ideas are important, too. And I think that there's a big role for um, nonprofits and labor uh, and what's left of that <laughs> to really push some of these new ideas and, and you know, argue that, that those should be... Um, you know, a big part of the policy conversation. And I think there's been more and more emphasis, for instance, on this predictable hours um, component. And that's a really uh, crucial factor for a lot of uh, working families. So, But don't we, don't we also have something that does this much more directly, which is called the state? And the point of the state is to actually <laughs> right. just say, you don't get to do that, and everyone doesn't get to do it, and then it stops. And yes, I've, yes. I've, I've spoken to enough people in, in the C-suite positions who say all the time, we'd love to do more on workers' comp, we'd love to be better citizens, we'd love to do more R&D and invest, but our, we'll all be fired and we'll be taken over by some activist and you know we're all out of a job. So we just keep doing this even when we know it's bad. That bespeaks not sort of supply-side information, more sort of direct direct action, just lengthen the time horizons for share reports, change the structure of boards, change the incentives through corporate governance reform. That surely would be a lot more effective, no? Yeah, well, I, I I guess I would pick out some issues to do directly through the state, and I think actually predictable hours legislation could be one of them. Um, but some issues I would be less comfortable asking the state to regulate. So, for instance, CEO pay. I guess I'm I would prefer the companies themselves decide how much to pay their CEOs. But I think having us know that information is is really useful. And I can even imagine, of course, that the tax system has a huge role to play. And, and so uh, taxes for me are the area that I spend most of my time thinking about when I'm not writing books. And and I think the tax system can really ha- is a powerful tool to, to sort of uh, respond to a lot of the social problems that we're seeing, both by increasing tax burdens at the top and by lightening tax burdens at the bottom. And that's something we could have easily done if we had the political will to do it, but that would also address some of these power discrepancies and outcomes. How about this is a wild and crazy idea. So one of the things that we all teach at various points is the old John Bates Clark dictum of marginal contribution determines wages. So how about we actually just make that a law and we actually have to prove that what your marginal contribution <laughs> to product is. And then if you're paid 700 times that, then we just whop a huge tax on you. Because if we don't do that, we're in this bizarro world whereby, you know, what's well, okay if a CEO gets paid 300 times because ultimately someone will tax them. No, they won't because the CEO and his friends own the politics. They own the politicians. And we're left in this bizarre position where the most productive people in, in human history are bankers because their marginal contribution to product must be massive given how much they get paid in bonuses. I mean, that seems to be much deeper than the level that we're willing to go to just now. Yeah, though I guess I would question, I, I, I like your framing of this issue, but I guess I would question whether it's um, more politically feasible to do this sort of marginal product legislation that you're talking about rather than tweaking the tax system. Um, Because we do have this really powerful tool. And I do think politics are, are... bound to change in a direction that, that makes it more palatable to, to tax the rich than it has been in, in recent decades. It seems like there's a movement afoot in that direction so, right now. Just when I'm becoming yeah. rich. Isn't that just always the way? <laughs> it's just, oh. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the, it's interesting. We're having this conversation. And uh, yesterday, uh, there was a Senate hearing 
on uh, shareholder proxy reform, uh, sort of changing the structure of how shareholders vote and how that uh, how, how how those choices can then uh, affect uh, companies. Uh, um, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I, I as as I understood it, it's uh, what was at stake is the possibility of cutting off suggestions from any shareholder um, to go to an actual shareholder vote meeting. And, and, and the argument against it is these are a lot of frivolous votes. Um, but you know, Phil Graham was there, the former senator, as he was testifying. And he said, this should be the job of the state. We should do this. And what I thought was interesting is the only reason it's coming up is because it's clear to some shareholders that the state is failing. <laughs> and so that's why they're offering these votes. And I think that it's perfectly reasonable for shareholders within a governance structure to say, look, we're willing to make less money because we don't think that it's right that the company's going to do this. We're willing to vote against our pocketbooks and for our own moral sense of what should be possible. Um, and you have the state wondering, well, should you have that power? That should be the power of the state, shouldn't it? So before we can even get to the point, Mark, where the state says, yeah, you can't do that anymore, um, we have to have this argument over who gets to do it. And it also seems like if the state were going to do it, they'd have done it. Yeah, I mean, I think those are good points. And, and one of the big questions that we you know, think about constantly in economics is where are the market failures and where should the state be acting? And, and I think, you know, there's often this sort of strange um, uh, dilemma put between whether to turn to the state or to the market. But there are often ways that you can sort of let the market do its own thing, but find the places where the state can be most effective in intervening. And so, um, you know, uh, a classic example that, that economists like is, is the carbon tax, for instance. If we've got this massive uh, market failure that's affecting the entire planet, um, one way to address that is to change the price of, of carbon. And if you increase that, then that incentivizes absolutely every actor in the economy, every person thinking of flying somewhere, every business thinking about how to build their next building. It incentivizes all of them to think about carbon naturally without having to be virtuous. Um, and so that's that's a very powerful thing that we can do through the tax system that, that corrects a market failure. And so I think it's really you know, it sounds uh, a little cliche, but it's really important to identify those market failures and respond to them efficiently. Because if you if you do clumsier policies, then those tend to be um, less cost effective and, and cause their own types of, of backlash. So, for instance, if we told each household that they could only do one load in their dryer per week or something you know, like <laughs> that might cut down on carbon emissions. But people would find it much more intrusive than if we than if we incentivize them to do so by by changing the prices. But we haven't done that, have we? I mean, there's been 20 years of talk about carbon taxes, a Nobel Prize has been given to someone who spoke about mm -hmm. it, and nothing's happened because we're relying on democratic politicians to vote for a tax increase. Yeah, but we have seen it in Canada. <laughs> you know, so so I, I, the British Columbia that, had this very That's the title of successful... my next podcast, but we have yes. seen it in Canada. Right. So there, there, you know, I guess I'm not as hopeless on this as I could be in the sense that I know that we're going to need a lot of government revenue in, in the coming decade. Uh, we have seen other countries do this successfully um, without crippling their economies and without um, terrible backlash. I know that there's, of course, the, the, some backlash in, in other countries. But I, but I do think you could make sort of a deal with people where you said, OK, we're going to do this and it's going to raise some of your costs, but we're also going to um, make sure that you're still left whole in the end. So we're going to simultaneously lower your taxes in other areas. And I, I think that that could be a very effective way to do this. Uh, have a carbon dividend, for instance, where you hand it back to Americans, like a nice check with a Statue of Liberty on it every month, where they got their carbon dividend back 
back and they could go use it to buy whatever they wanted. Um, and that would be a nice way to both save the planet and, and get political support I mean, for this. Honestly, if we could do a carbon dividend, then I, I would I would be happy if you put Donald Trump's face on it, really. If we could just <laughs> yes. get that policy, great. <laughs> call call it your Trump check and, and, <laughs> yes. and let's and let's and let's save us all. Um let me I want to ask a two part question. First part to Kimberly, second part to Mark. The first part is, you know, we just ripped open the tax code, um, looked at it, thought, oh, God, we can't fix that. And then and then pass a tax cut instead. So um, what should that have been? What would have been the ideal uh, tax structure, given that there was some will to rip it open? And then the second part to Mark, why didn't that happen? <laughs> okay, so first, I, I find that that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which isn't, by the way, its official title, which is Public Law 11597, for those of you who care, um, but that that was a huge step in the wrong direction for a variety of reasons. Um, we needed revenue, but it cut taxes. Uh, we'd had three decades of increasing income inequality, and it, and it doubled down on that by giving the biggest tax cuts to those at the top. We had a complex tax system in many ways, especially especially on the business side, it's even more complex. Um, and we had a tax system that encouraged uh, profit shifting offshore by multinational companies. Now we have a tax system that encourages profit shifting abroad <laughs> by multinational companies. So we, we really haven't tackled that problem persuasively. We've changed it a little bit around the edges, but it's not been a persuasive uh, response. So uh, instead, I think we should have made the tax system more progressive. We should have directly attacked that profit shifting problem. There are lots of simple ways to make the tax code um, less complicated. And we probably should have raised some revenue rather than um, cutting taxes, especially given that the economy is doing relatively well and we're going to need to um, have room to expand uh, our fiscal policy stance in our next recession, which is undoubtedly coming right around the corner. So I would have done something very different. How would have, How would you have... There's always this talk of broadening the base, which is a nice way to say we're going to take some stuff away from people, right? People yes. get certain mm -hmm. tax breaks. We're going to take them away. That's what broadening the base really means. Um, how would you have broadened the base? Who, whose, whose goodies would, have you, would you have taken away? Yeah, so on the business side, I would treat... Um, Foreign income more similarly to domestic income. Right now, uh, companies can earn billions and billions of dollars and put a lot of it offshore and basically get down to close to zero tax rates. And and there are some pretty simple changes that you could make that would uh, eliminate that that incentive to offshore your profits. And so that's what I would do on the business side. I would also reduce the the distortion between pass-through businesses or sort of S and LLC type form and the corporate form and try to make that decision less tax sensitive. On the individual side, I would raise capital tax rates relative to labor tax rates. And there are smart ways to do that too. There's a whole host of proposals. You could uh, eliminate the step up in basis at death that people mm -hmm. get, which causes them to hold their capital gains a long time. And, 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 if, and if you do that, that would allow for a higher capital gains tax rate, which would increase revenue there. Um, but what you're saying is yeah. pretty profound. And in order for that to even be politically considered, I mean, what you're saying makes sense. We can sit here and, and, and say this in a podcast. Yeah. We should definitely do that. But I mean, somebody is listening to this on Wall Street in a week and screaming out loud as they walk down the street with their with their headphones on. So um, you, what you're saying, you know, make uh, taxes on capital income and labor income more similar from your lips to God's ears. But there is 30 years of work of published papers that have said, although it's not borne out in the empiric mm -hmm. data, but they have said 
you got to tax capital at lower rates or else you won't get investment. And that's fixed in the heads of so many people in Congress, yeah. so many people on Wall Street. So how did that's an idea. How do you got to fix that idea before yes. you fix the tax code? And I'm working personally on fixing that idea because I think that idea is wrong. I think it's wrong in theory. And there's been some modern theory papers that have sort of shown that the assumption that you should tax capital more lightly than labor relies on really unrealistic characterization of the economy without bequests, without um some of the types of concentration that we see presently without um, market power. And once you add those features in, um, then it's it's not entirely clear that that theoretical result even holds. And as you point out, there's very little empirical data to show that. It's true, capital's not going to like it, but we need to remember in a democracy, capital has fewer votes than labor, right? And, and they've had a really nice run of it. Their their share of national income is you know, 8 to 10 percentage points higher than it was a generation ago. Um, and I don't think we've seen that really redounding to workers the way that those models might suggest. So I I would push back strongly and urge people to, to reconsider consider that that policy stance. Why not? All right, I'm going to take a I'm going to take a brief second, Mark. We need to pause so that a third of our audience can scream. Okay, now you pick it up. So why not just tax capital income as ordinary income? Why not just have everything as ordinary income and tax at the same rate? I mean, the fact that I make some money off of a condo rental in Boston is treated completely different if I make some money doing a speaking gig is treated completely different if I get it through wages. I mean, why not just uniform it? There, when, to go back to the, uh, when we had 35% capital gains tax, it was cut down to, I believe, 15% on the argument that, uh, of course, there'd be this flood of investment. And what there was was a massive growth in private equity, profit-taking, and investment stayed the same and actually fell at the margin. So, you know, we know this stuff doesn't work. It's just, we seem to lack, and I think this is the politics, to get back to the question that Brendan was going to ask me, but he didn't because he forgot, which is essentially, <laughs> you know, the, the politics in this are completely against you. You have a Congress that is utterly beholden to not just the financial services industry, but to industry in general, and right across both parties. Marty Gillen's work has shown conclusively that unless you're in the top 20% of the income distribution, your preferences do not count in anything Congress does. And this has been true for a very long period of time, that there's massive asset concentration in the top 20% of the population, and the top 20% of that 20% own basically 80% of everything. So these enormous structural factors that are there driving this, that, as you say, have been 30 years in the making. And then to make matters worse, when that whole system blew up in 2008, we bailed it out. We made the asset holders whole by basically dumping on the 80% in terms of bigger debts, deficits to pay for in the future, and lower growth. And this just sounds fundamentally beyond tinkering at some level, don't you think? Well, I this is you know, for I, the this is for the other third that are now going to scream. I just thought I'd put them in there, so we've got well, one me, third screaming. We've yeah. now got a third that are losing their mind. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to a brief remark, and then I'll give it to Kimberly, which is that I wish I could remember which. Republican member of Congress I was talking to about this, I sort of asked a question and I said, you know, why not? You know, you just got done with this tax reform. Why didn't you, you know, go in there and strip out some of the things that you'd been talking about to actually broaden the base so that you could lower the rate? And the answer was, well, that was really hard. And I thought, well, that's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. That's the trade off. That used to be the job. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a really remarkable contrast, this tax bill relative to the a true tax reform like 86, where they worked on it for years. They had so many hearings. The bar associations got to weigh in and they had the will to to put the lobbyists aside and do something that was politically difficult. This was just like cheap and easy tax cuts at the candy store slammed together, you know, in haste without <laughs> due consideration for a lot of the uh, effects it would have. And even the the aspects of it that the business community liked, they also found that, that some of them really weren't as well thought out as they thought. So even the business community is a little unhappy with, with their package of tax cuts because of the extra complexity that, that came with it. Um, to get back to Mar- what Mark was saying, I think a uniform treatment of capital and labor makes a lot of sense in part because um, it cuts down on all these shenanigans and gimmicks where people try to recharacterize their income in the more tax-preferred form. So I think you wouldn't have to raise rates to such extreme levels to get what you wanted if you sort of taxed all types of income more similarly. And that's one of the basic arguments that I think would um, would help move tax reform forward. Is it's like, well, would you rather pay you know seventy percent rate on some of that income and have to do a lot of silly things to like avoid it, or maybe we could just say, well, the rich really need to pay in the high thirties, and we're going to do that rate regardless of what games they play. And I'm more agnostic about what that rate is. That depends on the needs of the state. But but treating it all the same, I think it really makes a lot of sense. The politics are hard. It's true, but we've got some really difficult choices ahead, and I don't think. You know, um, candy store tax policy is really in in the best interests of the the nation. So I like that candy store tax policy is 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 I'm going to quote you on that often. Can I, can I go back? Um, to the, can I go back to the book for a minute? Because one thing we haven't spoken please. about is you actually have also a very strong defense of capital flows yeah. and the positive nature of capital flows. And this is something that even within the techie economics community has become difficult to argue. So can you tell us why you think capital flows, despite the stuff that we hear about them being problematic and disruptive and so on and so forth, are actually a good thing? Yes. So um, first, I should caveat that by saying that the focus of the book is really on the United States economic policy arena. Um, And so the argument that I'm making about um, capital mobility is that in the United States case, um, it comes with a tremendous amount of benefit. And the argument really is that um, by borrowing abroad, which is something we do every single year, um, we can be our profligate selves in a way that's less damaging than if we didn't borrow abroad. So if you imagine if we're going to run big government budget deficits, which we do uh, year after year, and if uh, Americans don't really like saving that much, which appears to be the case, right? If we weren't borrowing abroad, interest rates would be substantially higher, investment would be lower, um, and the country would be poorer as a result. So this ability to borrow abroad is sort of the, it's basically saying, okay, we want to consume now instead of later. Other countries then loan us money uh, so they consume later instead of now. And it, and in theory, that could be to the benefit of both parties. And, and a nice example is the US-China economic relationship over the last 10 years, where we've borrowed They've lent on net uh, over the last 10 years. Um, They have access, therefore, to safe assets abroad that can increase value for them um, and to export-led growth. We have access to um, more investment funds than we would otherwise, given our low savings rates. And that has the potential to make both China and the U.S. better off, even though it's going to show up as as trade deficits, because trade deficits are, in fact, the exact equal and opposite (laughs) of these capital flows. 
close. And that's something to bear in mind when we have an administration who's constantly telling us that trade deficits are a marker of who's really winning from trade. That's not the case. Trade deficits are really... Um, an indication of whether a country saves or borrows. And every country that is that is spending more than they earn runs a deficit, and every country that is earning more than they spend runs a surplus. And, and if you want to fix deficits, that's what you have to fix. You have to fix that savings investment imbalance. The way you're describing it says um, there's a demand for borrowing in the United States. That's fixed because we are who we are. And thankfully, it's met from abroad. So yay, worked out. Um, a different way of looking at it is that um, when a resource becomes available, people go a little crazy. And I could make an argument that the desperation to find dollar-denominated assets before the recession led to a bunch of irrational, awful behavior. And money sloshing around the world, savings, wealth sloshing around the world, looking for a home and wanting that home to be in the United States where the political risks are the best. They are really, even despite everything that we're talking about, you know, and where the dollar is strong and it's a good store of value, you know, looking for those assets showed up in the United States. Now, it did not show up in the best kind of investment from abroad. It did not show up as foreign direct investment. We did not get a bunch of, you know, green fields manufacturing plants paid for uh, by by it, multinationals from abroad. What we got was uh, portfolio flows, investors looking for liquid assets. And those assets turned out to be really terribly reconstructed mortgages that never should have been taken out in the first place. So I, I, I guess I don't completely agree that we have demand for investment from abroad. And thankfully, that demand is is met. I think the investment from abroad is coming into the United States and changing behaviors as it arrives. Well, you have a good point about the um, strength and attractiveness of, of U.S. financial assets. And because of that, um, that makes it really easy for us to borrow money from abroad because U.S. dollar-denominated assets are, are very attractive. Um, and that... Um, you know, typically results, and I, you know, we shouldn't overstate it. Typically results in borrowing about three percent of GDP, sometimes a little higher, sometimes a little lower. Um, so it's not like we're borrowing ten percent of GDP or something, but but we are on net borrowing from abroad. Financial regulation is extremely important and was a neglected part of <laughs> that run up to the uh, Great Recession. And I'm a big fan of better financial regulation. Uh, this story works best when capital is used efficiently and not put into sort of uh, flimsy structures that will ultimately crumble. Um, and so uh, I think that's a very important part of sound economic fundamentals is to make sure you have that uh, financial regulation taken care of. And you're right about different types of foreign direct investment, of course. You know, there's some that I think are much more uh, attractive than others. But one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, investments are fungible in the sense so that if you get a bunch of people investing in one type of asset then, and there's still capital out there, that that does mean that there's more capital available for other things. Um, but we have we have some systematic macro problems, too, that we probably don't have time to get in here, get into here. But one um, thing that listeners might want to look into are some of these notions of, for instance, the savings glut that Ben Bernanke was sort of talking about over the last decade that has sort of caused there to be sort of almost a surplus of capital throughout the world. Um, and the sort of related concerns of secular stagnation that Larry Summers often talks about that sort of talk about this sort of low um, opportunities to invest that, that are sort of a structural feature of our economy. And those are really big factors to consider, too. And I think one of the reasons we have the secular stagnation problem gets back to the, the beginning of our conversation where we're talking about the weakness 
of the middle class. If you want to know why firms aren't sort of investing more, I mean, they have to sell those products eventually. <laughs> and and if the middle class is already highly indebted and their wages aren't increasing, you know, who are they going to sell them to? We're, we're almost out of time. And I'm going to lean on uh, my friend Mark Blythe's uh, a- ability to sum things up nicely and put them in a little neat package with a bow on top. Mark, you're you're going to assign- No pressure. You said early- no pressure. <laughs> yeah, that's well, good luck to you. Um, you're, you're going to assign Kimberly Clausing's book open mm-hmm. to your class. You said that uh, before we started recording. Um, so why and how are you going to teach it? So I teach a class called The Political Economy of Impossible Policy Problems. So we take really hard stuff. And Kimberly's a nice twist on this because the really hard stuff that she's doing is she's batting the new conventional wisdom. So she's saying, everyone's saying trade is a problem. I may not agree with the bilateral trade people in the Trump administration, but there have been these big shocks. Uh, The middle class has been hollowed out. There's too much debt, both public and private, and we're all doomed. And there's climate change and that's it. We're all going to die. And actually what we have for once is a kind of an optimistic story, which says, well, yeah, but really what goes on here is human capital formation is really important. Investment's really important. And if you undo globalization, honestly, you'll all be worse off. Now, it may be the case that you can't eat an iPad. So it doesn't really matter if iPads are getting cheaper if you don't have a job. And it may be the case that in the aggregate, we're all dead if I was to update Keynes in that way. But if we actually make massive net losses through stupid policy choices, then we're going to hurt ourselves. So my challenge to the class in reading the book was to say, tell me that this optimistic story isn't the story that we want to pursue. Kimberly Clausing, thank you for being an optimist. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been a delight to talk to you both. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and by Amy Keane at the Financial Times. Please email us at alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all. Well, within the bounds of the podcast. For my part, I hope you enjoyed the show. 